So why does it have to be this hard? Do you ever find yourself saying that about life as a Christian? Let me tell you about Lauren. Lauren is entirely fictional, just to be clear. Uh, Lauren came to faith in Jesus out of a background of destructive relationships with men. She'd found herself in a cycle of unhealthy decisions, big crises, uh, deep regrets and resolutions to be different, but then back once again to unhealthy decisions. It was a cycle she'd felt unable to break out of. And then a Christian friend introduced Lauren to Jesus. And Lauren began to realise that she'd been unable to break free of this cycle of unhealthy relationships because she'd been looking for her identity and her main source of love and approval from these relationships. And she began to realise she'd been looking in the wrong place. And that only in Jesus would she find her true identity and meaning and purpose. And actually then that knowing that she was already loved and accepted by the God of the universe in Christ meant that she, she was willing to rest content in him and trust him to lead her. And she found herself strangely free of those desires that had previously driven her decision-making. And it felt for a while as if becoming a Christian was the solution to all her problems. Life was great, it was so much better than before. But then to her surprise and horror, she found that life as a Christian seemed to get not easier, but harder. Her new friends at church were, were great, but she didn't know them um, that well yet. They didn't know her. Her non-Christian friends who knew her much better, been friends for many, many years, they told her clearly and firmly that she was completely mad to be hanging out with God-botherers. And then, in one weekend... Her phone was stolen, her landlord said he wanted the flat back in two months' time, and her mum was diagnosed with cancer. And in the weeks that followed, she found herself once again struggling with the same temptations she had faced before she came to bed. Now, what would you say to someone like Lauren? The thing is, her experience is not unusual, and you might have your own version of that story from your life, maybe. I think if you told that story to some people who are not Christians, I think many would be surprised. You think, well, hang on a minute, what's the point? What have you gone and put your, you know, started following Jesus if actually your life is just getting harder? Just, just, you don't need that in your life. Walk away. And actually, I think it's a question that's not unusual to hear Christians asking when they find that life is hard. You know, you say, isn't God for me? Not against me if I'm a Christian? Can't he give me a break? Why do I have to struggle in this way? Well, well, both my non-Christian friends and, and, and many of my Christian friends never seem to struggle like this. Well, those are big questions. And I think Ephesians in this chapter as it finishes is going to help us. We're right at the end of this letter, remember. Uh, if you've been here, remember what we've seen, this cosmic vision of the gospel, that the universe is heading for a day where all things, all people will be gathered under one head, under Jesus. And God has made this Jesus the boss over everything that we can see and everything we can't see. And how's he done that? Well, he's done it by reconciling human beings who trust in him 
first to God and then also to each other. And then he's raised this Jesus and he's seated him in the heavenly realms where united to him and in him we are seated too as far as God is concerned. When he looks at Jesus, when he looks at us rather, he sees Jesus. And then when we saw that God has made a scale model of this master plan, he's made this scale model he's just to show the devil and his minions that they are defeated, that they cannot win. And what was this scale model that proves beyond doubt that his plan is coming true? It's the church. It's Christians gathering together from all different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, breaking down barriers. This is how God shows the watching world the shape of his plan to come. Now, we saw all that by the end of chapter 3. Then suddenly in chapter 4, we got very practical. And it turns out that this cosmic gospel that transcends time and place and has implications for everything and everyone, everywhere, ever, actually it also affects us right here, right now, in the nitty-gritty of, our, of how we live our lives and conduct our relationships. So do you remember the kind of things we've seen? Put off falsehood. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not steal. Do not let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Get rid of bitterness, rage, and anger. And so it goes on. And those are just a few of the things. And then we heard the, the nitty-gritty of household relationships as well. Marriage, parents and children, slaves and masters applied to uh, employment and work and things. And remember, all these things are written to Christians who are already trusting in Jesus. And the very fact that Paul has to write them reminds us that we shouldn't be surprised that living as a Christian can be challenging. Not just when we go through suffering like everyone else living in this fallen world, but also in times, for example, like when we fall out with one another. When for whatever reason, even within the church, we argue or we take offence or we fall out, whether over big things or little things. Just being the church and living out this vision of a new community that we've seen in Ephesians, that can be a real struggle, a real battle. And Paul is saying, don't be surprised. This is the normal Christian life. And that's why he then finishes the letter with these verses about a battle. So look at verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now these verses are relatively well known, I guess, you know, the armour of God is one of those things that gets a lot of airtime in Sunday schools because you know what? You can colour in the armour of God. And uh, you, if you go on, online and Google it, you can find an armour of God teddy bear um, with a breastplate of righteousness and, and, and so on. I don't know. Has anyone here got an armour of God teddy bear at home? No? You're missing out. But actually, we need to be careful not to miss the point, don't we? See, one danger is that we underestimate the nature of this battle because we think it's a children's story and we're immediately thinking of Roman centurions and we've forgotten what's actually going on here and more than that we think the devil is just a story you know nothing to worry about really no actually Paul is saying no th this is real this is reality this fight this battle behind the scenes 
the struggles we face in our lives as a Christian if we're trusting in Jesus are spiritual battles. The devil wants to trip us up. Don't underestimate it or trivialise it. But then there's an opposite danger too. There's a danger of sort of over-spiritualising this battle. If we read these verses out of context, then we have sort of visions of cosmic battles and it almost sounds like something out of Star Wars or maybe Lord of the Rings. And then we end up thinking, well, I've got my, my everyday life over here and then over here there's this massive battle going on with the devil, but you know, most of the time they, they don't have much to do with each other. Well, we've seen what the battle looks like in the earlier chapter, earlier chapters of Ephesians. The battle is not simply out there in another world, separate from our everyday experience. The battle is right here in our everyday interactions with one another and the world. And Paul is saying, those times when you fall out with your family or your flatmates, or those times when you're short-tempered with your co-workers or tempted to be, those times when you give in to sexual temptation... And all the different things he's covered in in chapters 4 to 6. Those times are the arena where this spiritual battle with the devil is being fought. Get real about the battle, he's saying. And in the battle there are three things that we need. And they're on the uh, notice sheet. First, verses 10 to 17, put on God's armour. And we're going to spend most of our time on this uh, first point. Put on God's armour. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So do you remember the end of chapter 3? That little uh, sort of doxology thing, the little prayer that he prays at the end of his prayer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. And what is that power that's at work within us? Well, we've heard about it a few times in Ephesians. In chapter 1, it's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. Now, that is some power, isn't it? It's not just, you know, uh, human power. It is supernatural power. It is divine power. It's the power that he prays might enable us to grasp, then, in chapter 3, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Same power. So right from the start of these verses, we need to be clear about one thing. The battle that we are in is not something that we're expected to fight by ourselves in our own strength. When we're struggling, we so easily think, it, you know, it must be because I'm not strong enough. You know, maybe, maybe I haven't got enough faith. I'm not good enough. I'm too weak. It's my fault. And Paul says, well, don't worry about that. Don't focus on that. What you need is not more of your own spiritual strength to withstand temptation. What you need is God's power. Be strong in him and in his power. And that power is available to us. Because Jesus has died and risen from the dead and we are united to him. So what then does it look like to appropriate this power in our lives? Well, it looks like putting on the armour of God, verse 11, so that you can take your stand in this cosmic battle. You need the right clothing as you go out into battle. You know, you wouldn't turn up on the battlefield in the Middle Ages wearing a pair of swimming trunks. You don't go into a a meeting with a client uh, just wearing underwear or whatever. You need to have the right armour. You need to have the right clothing. And just notice something about these spiritual forces. Where have we heard about them before? Well, they are included in in chapter 1, verse 10 as things which will one day be united under Christ. 
They're not separate from that. They're going to be subdued. And actually, they have already been subdued. Chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus has been seated in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. In other words, who's the boss? Jesus is the boss. It's one of the issues with um, something like Star Wars, isn't it? In, in, In the kind of good and evil you see in Star Wars, it's two equal forces. Either could win. In this universe, the one we actually live in, Jesus has already won. The devil cannot win. And that's what the church is testifying to those spiritual forces. In chapter 3, verse 10, just the existence of the church says, shows the manifold wisdom of God. It's saying to the devil, you cannot win. So when... uh, chapter 6 verse 12 says our struggle is against these spiritual forces we need to know they've already been defeated when Jesus died on the cross he defeated everything that stands between us and God all evil including the devil the devil is real but he cannot win it's like the end of the first gulf war in 1991 I hope it's okay to use to talk about this story, but yeah, this is this is what happened. As the Allied forces pushed the Iraqi army out of Kuwait, the Saddam Hussein's forces, as they retreated, they set fire to every Kuwaiti oil well that they came across on their path back to Iraq. They were defeated. There was no turning back from that, and there was no coming back to, to um, match the, the, the Allied forces that were pushing them back. But on their way back, they were determined to cause as much havoc as possible as they set fire to everything they could find. And there's a sense in which the devil is the same. You see, he, he longs to trip us up. He longs to convince us that he's got more power than he does. But do you notice what we have to do? Not to fight and defeat him all over again, but verse 11, verse 13, verse 14. Can you see there's a word there that keeps being repeated? Can you see what it is? It's the word stand. Stand your ground. Stand firm. Stay rooted to the spot. Stay where you are. Stand still. Put on the armour of God. And then he says, put on the belt of truth buckled round your waist, verse 14. In Ephesians, Paul has talked about how truth is what we need to speak and what we need to live, chapter 4, verse 15 and verse 21. The the devil, by contrast, is the father of lies, according to Jesus in John's Gospel. But truth drives out lies, like light drives out darkness. See, the devil will try and lie to us and make us think, for example, that we're not good enough. He will make sure we are aware of sin in our lives. He will make sure we are feeling terribly guilty about the ways that we've messed up. With the ways that we have entertained gossip behind somebody's back, or whatever it is. And he'll say to us, call yourself a Christian. You hypocrite, you're not not a real Christian, are you? And we'll think it's better just to chuck it in and give up. 
Put on the armour of God. Put on the belt of truth. What is the, the truth? The truth is Jesus has defeated the devil and he's forgiven our sin and in him every day is a fresh start. And when we confess our sin and are messing up to him, he says, I love you and I forgive you. The belt of truth helps us too when we feel life has kind of emptied us out emotionally. Do you ever feel like that? Even the point where you're thinking, I'm not even sure if God is there. I don't feel anything. Well, the belt of truth holds the clothing of the Christian life in place. Seek the truth of the Lord in his word. Get back to the basics. Jesus lived and he died. And we, we, we know that. Historians know that. There's no doubt that, he, that there was this guy, Jesus, who lived and died. Of course, what's in question is, did he rise from the dead? Well, let's think about that. Are there, any, are there really any other adequate explanations of this? Well, no, none that really stand up to scrutiny. You know, Roman soldiers knew how to kill people. He was dead and buried. But then the tomb was empty. And what happened? Well, the disciples turned from fear and hiding to joyful and fearless proclamation, even to the point where they were willing to die. And they, and they all did, of the original 11. Now, why would they do that? For something they only half believed or they didn't believe at all or, or that they deliberately made up. So you have to sort of talk it through in your mind, talk it through and see actually, yeah, look, this is, this is the, a firm foundation to build my life on. Whatever I'm feeling right now, this is the belt of truth. Put it on and then everything else, our feelings and everything else will follow and fall into place. Then the breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. In the New Testament, righteousness has two senses. One is Christ's perfect righteousness, which is imputed to us when we trust in him. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin, but he sees Jesus' perfect life. So it's just as if I'd never sinned, and just as if I'd always kept God's perfect standards. But particularly in Ephesians, righteousness also refers to the way we live in response to what God has done, living out that new justified status. And in both senses, in the middle of this battle in the heavenly realms, what we need is this breastplate of righteousness. The knowledge that we only are what we are because of Christ's righteousness and that we can only be what we are when we are empowered by Christ. And the devil will tempt us to doubt this, to believe that God remains angry and disappointed and distant because of our sin. To believe that, that real change and progress in our lives is impossible. And when we've messed up, the temptation is to, to hide away from God, to hide away from church. Paul is saying, no, get that breastplate of righteousness on. It's not about us and our performance, it's about him and he's already done it. So live that out. Then verse 15, our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. It's a slightly odd phrase. It's not, it's not actually shoes, is it, that you have to put on your feet? It's readiness. Readiness that comes from the gospel. And Paul may well have been thinking of a verse from Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 7. Uh, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. The gospel of peace turns God's people into people who bring peace to others. 
And in Ephesians, that peace is about peace with God and with one another. And it's as if we live, and it's, it's as we live as that community that people see the gospel in action and we have opportunities to speak about Jesus. The shield of faith is next, verse 15. It, it, it enables us to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, the devil. Remember, he's like the retreating army, still firing its guns, even though it's lost. All you need is the shield of faith. And faith, by definition, is not a, a mighty work that you have to go and say, hey, look at me, I've got all this faith, aren't I great? No, it's a tiny seed that says, I can't do this by myself. Only Jesus can, and he has And then the helmet of salvation, which is another reference to Isaiah chapter 59. Why a helmet? Because the head is where you aim at to to deal the killer blow. And in Christ, we are totally protected from the evil one. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, as Paul puts it in Romans 8. We're totally secure because of what he's done. And then the final piece of armour is the only offensive weapon in the list. Everything else is just enabling you to stand while the devil does what he does and you stand firm. But here is the one offensive weapon, the sword, the word of God made powerful and effective by the spirit of God. The word of of truth is what they believed and received, what gave them life back in verse 13 of chapter 1. It's also the means by which God equips and builds up his church we saw in chapter 4. Do you remember in chapter 4, if you were here, we talked about the the question of the difference between a Bible-teaching church and a Bible-obeying church. The Word of God is only a powerful weapon in our lives when we're prepared to listen to it, to sit under it. In the new year, I'm proposing that as a church, we read the whole New Testament together through 2019. Now, what do you have to do to do that? Do you know if you, that, there's exactly the right number of chapters in the New Testament to read it, what, to read one chapter a day, five days a week, and it will take you 52 weeks. It's amazing, isn't it? It's almost like it was designed like that. So that's kind of realistic, isn't it? You get five days a week, a couple of days for catch-up, one chapter, it's not very long, and we will do the New Testament in a year. Because it's the sword of the Spirit. It's what we need to face whatever struggles or battles we find each new day, each new week brings. If you want to help put that uh, Bible reading plan together and you, you sort of like sitting at a computer and using Word or pages to kind of format things... Um, then let me know because you could help. I've got a template. I'm going to show you how to do it. It's just a question of actually setting it all out. That would be really helpful if somebody feels like doing that. Get in touch. Um, But I think that will really help us as a church in our everyday lives to be listening and living out the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. But put all this together, the armour of God, and what do you have? You have a picture of what it means to stand firm in the face of every opposition we encounter. See, the devil will do his best to convince us he can win, but he can't. And all we need to do is stand firm with God's armour on. 
Last year we went to Disneyland Paris, and there's this, I keep talking about Star Wars for some reason, but there's this amazing Star Wars ride called Star Tours, and you go on this kind of flight simulator, and it's a kind of interactive, fully immersive mission. Um, and it feels like you're flying through space and you're being fired at by aliens, and you know, it's amazing. If, if you're kind of in your late 30s, then it's absolutely fantastic. If you're an eight-year-old girl, then the whole thing can, for some, not for all, I'm sure, but for some, such as my daughter, it can get rather overwhelming because the immersive experience is so realistic. But in the middle of all that, if it's all too much and you're kind of terrified by the whole thing, what do you have to do? Just close your eyes. See, if you close your eyes, you can remind yourself that the reality is that you're just in a metal box in a building near Paris, which isn't really flying anywhere. You're not in the gamma quadrant or whatever. You're just moving up and down in a box, and soon you'll be able to get out and carry on. See, it's very realistic, but ultimately it's just a game. It's not real, and if you close your eyes, you can help yourself believe the reality. And it's the same with the devil, you see. In the midst of the struggle at work, at home, wherever it is, well, actually, of course, the pain is real. We're not saying that it's an illusion. No, it is a real pain that we feel, but it's the story that goes with it that is so often a lie. You know, that the pain we feel and we say, well, this, this is it, this is the end, it's all over, all hope is lost, I can't go on, God is gone, he's, he's abandoned me, he's left me. All the things that we say to ourselves. Paul is saying, no, don't believe the lies. Put on the armour of God. The devil has been defeated. He can't win. Resurrection dawn is coming. And then very much more briefly, he says two outworkings of this. Verses 18 to 20, then. Pray for God's help. Pray for God's help. Paul's been big on prayer in Ephesians with his two prayers in chapter 1 and chapter 3. And now he says prayer doesn't have to be big and full of words. It's something you can do anytime, anywhere. And he reminds us in verse 18 that prayer is something we do in the Spirit. This isn't a special kind of prayer. as if There's normal prayer and then there's also spirit prayer. All prayer is to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we know that he will listen to us and answer us. Not because we deserve it, not because we've got everything sorted, but because Jesus died for us to give us access to God. And actually hard times and struggles can make us pray less instead of more. Do you find that? You know, we, we have a hotline to our Heavenly Father if we're trusting in Jesus. Do we use it? But it can go the other way as well. Complacency, a feeling that everything is going reasonably okay, well, that can also make us feel like we don't want to pray, or worse, that we don't need to pray. What does Paul say? He says, pray on all occasions, whatever our circumstances. Put the ground kneeling. And look at his priority here. He's in chains, he's in prison, verse 20. What would we pray for if we were in his situation? You know, he's, he's, it's to- totally unjust what's happening to him. He's imprisoned uh, completely wrongly. And no doubt he would have preferred not to be there in prison. But what's his priority? What's he praying for? Not that God would open the prison door, 
but that he, Paul, would open his mouth and that he would have the words, when he does open his mouth, to speak about Jesus fearlessly, whatever the circumstances. So why am I suffering? Why am I struggling? Well, we don't always know God's purpose in our suffering beyond his general promise to use it to make us more like Jesus. But maybe, maybe one of his purposes is for us in the midst of our suffering to testify to his goodness and kindness and to how the gospel gives us real hope in the face of the struggles we face. If you want a real life example of that, go and have a cup of tea with David Ashman and ask him how God has been working in him even through the immense trial and pain of his dislocated knee. And if he says the same kind of things as he's been saying these last few weeks to, uh, to many different people, he will encourage you with how God has been good to him and how good the gospel is. Praise God. And that takes us to the final thing which follows from that then. Encourage God's people. Verses 21 to 24. Encourage God's people. Look at those verses. It's easy to skip over them at the end of the letter and ignore them. But this is living out the unity of the Spirit that Paul has emphasised in chapters 4 to 6. Tychicus is an example of real-life, other-person-centred love. Perhaps he's delivering the letter. But he's not just a postman. He's an encourager. He's taking the time to see how he can point the Ephesians to Jesus. It's sometimes said that churches are full of radiators and drains. <laughs> because living out this scale model of the gospel that the church is called to means being radiators of the gospel to one another, not drains to one another. Do you see? Of course, there will be times when we are being cared for more than we are caring for others, and that's perfectly appropriate. But in the Christian life, it is never a loss to give ourselves to others, even if we're physically weak, giving ourselves in prayer and encouragement. And it's often striking how it is people that, on the surface, look the weakest, whether it's physically or in some other way, and they're the people who are most able to give out the most encouragement. It's extraordinary, isn't it? But that only comes from the gospel. And then the final verses, those two verses, sum up the message of the letter in two simple words that we could just ignore and, and skip over, but they sum it up. Peace and grace. Do you remember chapter 2? Christ is our peace. He's broken down the dividing walls between us. And then grace. It is, what have we learned about grace in Ephesians? It is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. That kind of undying love, even in the midst of hard times and struggles, will only come when we grasp the scope of this great master plan that we've seen in Ephesians. We're heading for unity under Christ in eternity. It's a future that is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, a free gift. So put on God's armour, pray for God's help, encourage God's people and live the life of this new community as a witness to the world and for the glory of God. Let me pray.
Father, wherever the battle takes us, whether it's in our relationships with one another, whether it's in our relationships with our families and friends and colleagues and neighbours, our interactions with the world around us, thank you for your armour. Might we put that on? And would we then be able to stand firm in you and in your mighty power? Father, we pray for protection against the devil's lies about ourselves, about those around us. That we would put on the belt of truth that we would believe the gospel that Jesus has died and risen from the dead. And would that drive us to our knees in prayer, whatever our circumstances? And would it lead us to keep on looking for ways to encourage one another? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.